welcome everybody. This is the I Watch That podcast. I am your host, Jenny, and I am going to be joined again today with my sister, Katie. And I know we teased some of this back in our coverage of the Umbrella Academy episodes, but we are finally releasing our episodes on Mike Flanagan's Netflix projects. Okay, so Haunting of Hill House. Here we go. I love this show. I love this show so much. It's one of my favorite shows ever. It was so good. I pretty much think that this show is flawless. Like The show is <laughs> there's flawless. There's very little, if anything, that I would change. Let's go over just the basic premise. Okay, if you've listened to us before, especially our coverage of the Umbrella Academy, where we really gave you a rundown of every element of the story and the plot... This won't be quite like that because there is frankly so much that happens that we thought it would be more beneficial to just sort of cover the things that stuck out to us, the themes, the character growth, giving you our takes and honestly what we love about this show. There's not a lot to hate. No, it's fucking perfect. Everything that we love. But we will start with a bit of setup. There is a young family. We get the sense that they are house flippers of some kind. So they move their whole family to this old, very large, sprawling, quite frankly... Very creepy. Very creepy haunted vibes mansion. Yeah. And they're going to renovate it. And it seems like she's some kind of designer. He's not officially a builder architect, but that's going to be his role. Yeah, he's like their duo's contractor. They are DIY couple heaven. Yeah, they belong on HGTV. Yes. Yeah. The kids are all very young at the start of the show. They live in the house. The general setup that we see from the past is one night, something went down. The Mm -hmm. dad and the children flee the house and the mom does not come with them. We Mm -hmm. are led to believe very early on that the mom has died. That's basically what we get of the past right here at the beginning. And then... We start with the oldest sibling, Stephen, but we're going to jump to, for much of the show, the children as adults and how this still ties into their life. Mm. And so we start with Stephen. He's the oldest. He is an author. He has written a book about this. He's kind of made a career out of horror mystery novels. That's his gig. Mm. We get a sense that his personal life is maybe not in great shape. He appears to be living separately from his wife. One important detail from this first episode is that the youngest sibling, Nell, Mm -hmm. is reaching out to her various siblings. She's calling them. She doesn't seem to really be in great shape. And they're all taking this as like, oh, here goes Nell again. Like, yeah, it's really good couple scenes. Just Nell in a hotel room calling Stephen and getting denied and then calling Shirley. And then Shirley, instead of picking up, calling Stephen later to tell him to deal with Nell. And you learn so much about the family's dynamics and how they view Nell. Right. So they're kind of dismissive of Nell's issues. She does, from the very brief phone calls we're getting, like seem to be kind of a troubled person. And then it all sort of ends with Stephen arriving back at his apartment where he's clearly staying away from his wife. This is like very much like divorced dad apartment, yeah. only he's not a father. Minimal furniture. Very minimal furniture. Very modern place, like mm-hmm. the works. He briefly runs into Nell's twin. Mm -hmm. He thinks is like attempting to steal from him because he's a drug addict. Yeah. He's taking a camera and an iPad and broke Steven's door in. 
Yeah, his name is Luke. We will go on to learn much more about him. They have a brief interaction. Steven's like, hey, give me my iPad back and my camera. I need that stuff. But here's $200. Go on your drug addict way. Mm -hmm. Luke is not in good shape. No. That that will be important later. Mm -hmm. Crazy scene because he comes back from doing a job, sees Luke and walks into his apartment to Nell standing in the corner. And he's kind of berating her because why did you just let Luke rob me? So yeah, he's kind of yelling at Nell, who is in his apartment, being like, why are you here? You called everybody earlier. What can you possibly want? You just let Luke rob me. He gets a call from his dad saying that things are bad. Nell went back to the house and that Nell is dead. Mm -hmm. And from there, the Nell that Stephen is seeing in his apartment very suddenly is very obviously not alive. Very ghosty. Very scary. She screams in his face and then vanishes. And that's the end of episode one. Called Steven Sees a Ghost. This is sort of Steven's episode. Each sibling gets their own episode. Which is brilliant. An important fact about Steven is that on that night that everything happened in the past, he probably saw the most. He didn't see exactly what had happened. Steven sees the least. No, he sees their mom. But Steven sees one of the scarier elements Mm -hmm. on that night in the past. As his dad is carrying him out of the house, he sees a very freaky version of his own mother limping, Mm -hmm. but like running and limping in this like creepy nightgown, like down the hall after them. She is deranged. Yeah. Like they are fleeing his mother. And it's really interesting who sees what on that night depending on their ages because the twins arguably see the most but they're the littlest yeah so nelly and luke know everything that happened that night but we as an audience won't know anything that happens really from their perspective until much later and so we get steven's perspective because he's the oldest and remembers everything he saw that night the most but he arguably only sees the very end of it and knows nothing else about what happens steven sees his mother To his knowledge, she's still very much alive. He goes on in this like tell-all book that he writes and then throughout the rest of his career being very, very adamant that he doesn't actually believe in ghosts. The story that he's crafted about his childhood, he doesn't actually believe in Mm -hmm. it. Which is a huge point in his arc because he profited so hard from the ghost stories of his past and yet is he so condescendingly assured that there's no such thing as ghosts he sort of denies that anything unusual actually happened in that house until the very end of this first episode when he very clearly sees the ghost of nell and this changes everything for him Mm -hmm. i'll also say other very good structural bits from this first episode you get tiny tidbits from both theo the middle child and shirley about nell and luke that come up later but i think one of the most they're having a very casual conversation about Nell and Theo says I think very frankly like it sucks to be Nell and then Shirley says something to the effect of like you guys still haven't spoken since LA and nothing else is said and I think it's just a tiny tidbit of all the dialogue but it's a very great example of how in this world Mike Flanagan really uses family horror to create dialogue that doesn't tell you anything more than you need to know and so they'll constantly be dropping little tidbits about events that have happened for them all that you won't see for another three episodes. Families talk in a shorthand because mm-hmm. they all know already what's happened. They don't need to describe it to you. And that feels very refreshing in a show that doesn't over explain things to you. It'll say something that everybody in the room knows about but you as an audience. And then later it will go on to show you what they're all talking about. 
Yeah, and I think something that they've done masterfully in this show is they've chosen to withhold whatever mm-hmm. it is that happens in L.A. that, you know, Theo has briefly mentioned to Shirley. Mm-hmm. They choose to withhold it very purposefully because where they have slotted it in later in the show so important has helped to build the horror of it all Mm -hmm. some of the worst and scariest things that happen in this family you only start to see as time goes on we're getting a sense that something is very messed up here but we're not really seeing it until it's so much later and then the volume with which it just suddenly grows into this proportion of like things are very scary here Yeah, and the metaphors in this show go throughout, and I think that one particularly is such a good reference to the mold that we get introduced to way, way late into the season. All of these little sprinklings throughout the show that both hint at there's ghosts and things aren't okay, and like there have been incidents beyond these family members, it's so growing underneath that by the time you recognize it and you understand everything that this family's talking about and all the events that have affected them, like, it's way too late for anybody. It's there. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's the perfect example of just, like, burying it until you can't. We just see the characters talk about these things and, like, barely acknowledge them Mm -hmm. until suddenly you can't not address it. And even as an audience, we're seeing what they're talking about and it's like, oh, how were you keeping this in all this time? Mm -hmm. The metaphors is a perfect transition, though, into... Shirley's episode, Mm -hmm. which Shirley is a fascinating character. Shirley is the second oldest. Mm -hmm. She is so true to character the entire show. She is so uptight and thorough and careful and responsible, often in a negative way. She has such a high horse. Right. Like, I think that especially we know that Stephen has... People are are angry with him for writing this book. And so Mm -hmm. Shirley has sort of taken up this mantle of being the oldest. She is the most responsible. She's Mm -hmm. the one who definitely is like, sure, Stephen is the oldest, but he's like off being some sort of chaotic self-denial author. So I will carry this family. Like she just like takes that responsibility. And she always does. And she always does. Even if nobody asks her to. And they do throw that in her face in a later episode but it's such a good critique of her character is she has that quality of like i am going to self-sacrifice by taking on this burden and everybody's like no one asked you to lord it over us that you did something that nobody wanted you to do i mean as much as shirley is a character that i Mm -hmm. don't really like yeah her episode it's just rich in like parallels metaphors Mm -hmm. it is part of what makes the show so beautiful like this show is horror but this show is beautiful it's stunning Shirley is a very big part of that as much as I don't like Shirley Mm -hmm. for anybody who has watched (laughs) Twilight no she's great in Twilight for anyone who has seen Grey's Anatomy she is played by the same actress who plays Rebecca she is a horrible messy terrible character in Grey's Anatomy and it's so hard to look past that like especially if you cast her in another role where you're not supposed to love her yeah no well and I find it so fascinating because she's not a character that exists in the original adaptation and so Mike Flanagan has gone out to say that he based her off of Shirley Jackson the author of the original source material And I get what he's saying about he gave her kind of qualities that make her deal with ghosty things head on and she's very sure of herself. And I think it was meant to be a compliment, but Shirley and Steven, the two eldest, deal with their grief in such a unlikable way. Well, 
Yeah, and I know that that's coming across as like very harsh, but she's very cold. Yes, there we go. Shirley is not warm. She does not open up to people. She's not relatable, but her episode mm-hmm. contains some of the most beautiful detail and like important stuff for this mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. And one of them is right at the beginning of her episode when she is little. She is at Hill House and she finds all of these kittens. Mm-hmm. The mama cat is nowhere to be found. Keeps them, you know, takes them into the house, nurses them overnight. And I think by the morning, like one of the kittens has passed. We get the sense that eventually none of these kittens make it. Mm-hmm. Shirley's having her first interaction with death. Like as parents, they think they raised these kids very well and they are handling it beautifully with what they're explaining to her about death and they're having a little burial for the kittens and then there's two takeaways from this scene with the kittens i think are really important the first is her mom says something like you know shirley is so upset like why do the kittens not survive she was tending to them so well and the mom says something like babies are not supposed to be without their mothers yep mothers need to protect their babies and that is a lot of foreshadowing for what's to yeah. come. It's so tiny, though. It's so small. But the other thing that happens in this little burial of the kittens, she thinks at one point that it's still alive and it's breathing. She's seeing the chest move and everything, and she gets very anxious and excited, and she's trying to help it. But then eventually this disgusting beetle just crawls out of its mouth. It's so, it's so scary. It's so gross, and it's so traumatizing for her first experience of death. And then theme throughout her entire episode, and something I think really shapes her character, um, because we haven't even said what she does for work yet, but the theme for this entire episode and for Shirley as a person is just that death is gross. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it is gross and it is clinical Mm -hmm. and it is not beautiful. It's not emotional. It's not emotional. It's not poetic. It's gross. And so Shirley as an adult, she runs a funeral home. She was so traumatized and afraid of death that she has, like, exposure therapied herself. Because in her episode, you also get the funeral of her mother. So the nights pass, it's after the fact, and they're at the funeral and surely cannot make it to the front. We get this scene of this funeral director guy stepping in to kind of walk her to the front and explain what he's done to her mother to make her presentable. And this roots in Shirley deeply enough that that's what she grows up to do. And we get the scene of her doing the same thing with this little boy, explaining what she's done and that she's made his grandma very pretty. The specific events that you go through as a child, you will go through again as an adult and either you've learned or you haven't. Right. And I think with Shirley, she's not past anything. She has not gotten past this. Mm -mm. But she thinks she has. She like attended this funeral of her mother as a child and like she's not gotten past that point. It was the one time that like something helped her cope and she connected with this death. I think it's even said like, I fixed it. Yes. She fixed her. Shirley fixes people after they die and make them perfect, which is another facet of her character is that she is that perfectionist. Other parallel that we get to see is that when Nell gets married, Shirley does Nell's wedding makeup Mm -hmm. and now here in the present and Shirley is kind of once again doing Nell's funeral makeup again this parallel of Mm -hmm. she's trying to fix her and she's trying to make death poetic Mm -hmm. everyone in the show thinks entirely fucked up that shirley does nell's funeral and she explains it so well that she's like by the time i can explain to you what you need to do to fix her i'll just do it myself and that's such a shirley thing to just say i'll do it myself 
Mm-hmm. And for Shirley, I think like the clinical side of death is how she's come to cope with it. She's like, okay, I've accepted this. It is gross. Mm-hmm. It's clinical. Yeah. Other important things from episode two is we are getting more detail about the house in the past just being very creepy. It's fucking full of ghosts. All of the scenes that we get in the past, as much as we may be glossing over some of them now, like you are seeing ghosts lurking in the background of scenes. Which I will say I never see. I have gone through the Easter egg articles about every single ghost from Haunting of Hell House tucked in the background. There are so many. So many. Mike Flanagan has said not even all of these ones that say a hundred ghosts from the background has found all of them. Like he had extras Mm -hmm. lined up every day of shooting to just tuck in places because he could. And I think I'm blind (laughs) i literally look in every scene i just cannot which happens on like scary articles too Mm -hmm. like we'll do like no sleep articles and i'll be reading them and it'll show a picture of something and everyone's like fucking picture and i can't see anything and i've showed one to my friend and they're like katie it's in the doorway like it's like and it's a close-up shot of a doorway and i looked at the doorway and there's nothing in the doorway katie can't see ghosts i can't see ghosts what Someone who knows what that means, uh, tell us what that means. But no, plot-wise, one of the other most important things we get from Shirley's episode in the past is we see their mother start to have uh, what she calls a color storm. Yeah. And we're, we kind of initially were meant to take this as a migraine. Yeah. While Shirley is very upset about these kittens, she's kind of frantic and asking a lot of questions and really pressing her mom on why did this happen? And her mm-hmm. mom starts to have what she calls a color storm. But she says that this one was different than ones she's had before because everything was pitch black instead of that there were like too many colors or whatever it is that normally happens to her. Which I think is such an important detail because she calls them black fireworks. And later we see, I think, a visual representation of what that is from the house infecting her state of consciousness. But it's so early on that you're just like, yeah, she locks up with a migraine while her daughter's experiencing death for the first time and lies to her. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's so important to Shirley, but it's such kind of a small moment from the parents where they're like, it's okay, but it's not. And that's what's beautiful about family horror is all of these little things that especially the parents do, which might seem smaller and significant, like last with these kids for the rest of their lives. The next sibling that we are introduced to is Theo. Kate Siegel. Kate Siegel. The hottest bitch around. The very first thing I wrote down is Theo is so effing pretty. Like more than that, Theo, Theo is, is fucking Theo hot. Is so hot. So she's the middle middle child. As an adult, we get to know her much more than I feel like we ever really do as a child. Mm-hmm. But as an adult, Theo is so fascinating because she is this like hot, mysterious lesbian with like a PhD and a killer job Mm -hmm. and just very big like oh she's the only sibling who like really got her shit together but you can tell that she is damaged yeah she lives in like a tiny little guest house on Shirley's property Mm -hmm. she's sensitive Mm -hmm. pun intended oh yeah Um, but she's very sensitive she's very Mm -hmm. needy But she's like, she doesn't want you to know that. And she doesn't know how to say it. Mm -hmm. Needing other people feels embarrassing to her. Mm -hmm. So one of our introductions to Theo as an adult is that she goes out to a club and she's dancing and she kind of eyes another woman and they're dancing together. And they, you know, go back to Theo's place and they hook up. And then this other woman wants to touch her. I think she like reaches out for her hand or something like that. Theo is like, I do not do touch. She puts on these 
gloves, like full on, like elbow length gloves. Mm-hmm. She's always wearing these gloves. You kind of finally start to notice she's always got these gloves on. And as a child, like she's always wearing thick sweaters. Mm-hmm. Her mom notices. She's like, sweetie, you always seem very cold. Yeah. They talk a little bit about it, and Theo goes on to describe that she can just, like, feel things. Theo has a sense of premonition through touch, in which she can either take on or become privy to the emotions and events of others, just through a single touch of skin-to-skin contact. And so we learn through the episode Mm -hmm. having that kind of insight to other people and how much damage that brings to a person. Yeah, and she is this fascinating character where she maintains her boundaries very strictly Mm -hmm. by wearing these gloves she's like i'm not going to accidentally take on your emotion she's a child psychologist Mm -hmm. and she will very selectively take off a glove and like hold the toys that the child was playing with Mm -hmm. during their session and she will know what these children are going through and you get the sense that this work is very saddening and very hard for her but she's almost like dutifully doing this work because she has this gift Even when these kids don't know how to express what they're going through or they're feeling, like who else can be there for them to intercede on their behalf? Much like nobody could intercede on her behalf when she was little, she very much kind of like surely takes the position in her adulthood that she needed in her childhood. Mm -hmm. There are not a lot of very plot-driven elements Mm -hmm. that happen in this episode. There are things that are just very heavy. She is bearing a lot of the weight of the emotion of what her family has gone Mm -hmm. through and then also taking it on from others and one of the heaviest things that we see happen in this episode is she has a patient who sees a monster or ghost or something that they call mr smiley and they draw this terrifying (laughs) image really fucking freaky almost like a jack-o'-lantern type smile photo child draws this image and Theo, you know, can't get much of anything from them because she says they've put up a lot of walls this child has. Mm-hmm. And throughout the course of the episode kind of makes an impromptu visit mm-hmm. to where the child lives and goes down to the basement sort of touching elements. She kind of explains to the parents, you know, house calls aren't normal, but yeah. your child really isn't opening up in any helpful way. And I just really want to get a sense of why this basement is so scary to them. Mm-hmm. Throughout the course of this scene, She's eventually laying on a couch um, because she sensed something there. And as we see her touch it, she is overcome by emotion and she's sad and she's scared. And we see in the ceiling of the scene, Mm -hmm. there is this squiggly wooden notch shape of a face. Theo is in her car later reporting the father Mm -hmm. of that child for sexual abuse. And so we just get a sense of how heavy her work is. I think what's important about adult Theo is that her entire theme is about bearing other people's grief. She's like a physical embodiment Mm -hmm. of empathy, but then also how damaging empathy can be. Like if you take on other people's worst traumas, that gets to you. Yep. The family splits after their childhood into teams those who believe in ghosts and the supernatural, and those who don't and only think it's mental illness within the family, Theo is the bridge between both because she is supernaturally aligned. Like She has these powers to be able to do these things, and yet she also sees the most horrific real-world horrors that aren't ghosts 
And so she both lives in the world of like, there are man-made horrors that are fucked up and horrific. And there are also ghosts in this world that are mean and scary. And she has a great quote, I think, in this episode where Shirley's getting really righteous about Stephen's book and trying to like get everybody else banned against him. And Theo just says, like, I've heard it all. Like, I heard Dad's tabloid horror show. I heard Nellie and Luke's ghost tales, which I want to say she says to Nellie's face. Like, it's a little bit mean. And then she goes on to say, and I've listened to Shirley and Steve telling everybody we're crazy and she just wants to live life. Like, we get that she's just Mm -hmm. very tired with the family and has to put up a lot of walls with all of them because of all of their positions on these things that went on in their childhood and how that affected their views of the real world. I think tying her to Shirley and her adult life is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. I feel like she does fall down a little bit more on the side of the ghost stories and things because having sensed, I think she believes it a little bit and then Shirley very clearly does not. And Shirley is very of the mindset that there's like insane mental illness in this family. With her boundaries, she can't be around Nell and Luke. No. And she can be around Shirley, but her and Shirley are so far apart in what they believe happened. Yeah, so they don't need to talk about it. Yeah, about her, her powers. You know, I sort of came around on how they fit into the broader theme of empathy and bearing everybody else's grief. And also Mm. the fact that she's such a middle child to just observe and sense everything and to tie the family together and see all the different sides. Like it made sense in that context, but there was something a little bit out of the blue that they have almost like a witchiness in their lineage where the mom's like my mom was this way and i'm this way and now you're this way theo where it's like by the way we do have a predisposition for witchy things in this family and it's almost as if it takes a little bit of the responsibility off of the house or it's almost like a little bit convenient for the plot that one of them can like sense things and has powers like it's to me opens the world building a little bit more because yes this entire story is about the house For me, their mom introducing that lineage was more of a metaphor about like what mothers pass on to daughters. But there's a scene when Olivia, their mom, is giving Theo her first gloves because her mom is just a little bit aware about what her daughter's going through that I think is so wider arching than just convenient or like we're witchy, which is like, I understand you and I've been through this and I'm going to pass on some of my knowledge about what you're about to go through. Like, and like having to pass down that like trauma to your children. Mm hmm. Or just like pass down your coping mechanisms. Like, I'm sorry you have this baked in trauma, but here's what you can do about it. Like, I'm sorry your genetics are going to make you bleed every fucking month, but this is what you do about (laughs) it. Like, that's to me what the larger metaphor is about. And there is a very good line in a later episode about Steve yelling at his dad, like the wrong parent died. And it's really a messed up moment. But every time I watch this and I see the scene of Olivia talking to Theo about her powers and being like, we'll talk about it when you're older. Like, it always hits me that the wrong parent for Theo died Mm -hmm. because Theo needed her mother, especially later in life. And Olivia even knew about Theo's sexuality, like, so young. Like, Theo, as an adult, would be wholly different if Olivia survived the house. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating. Yeah. The final thing from... Theo's episode that is fascinating is we're in the present and Nell is in the funeral home being prepped for her funeral and Theo decides to go down there to where she's being prepped and she's going to touch her and she's going to sort of glean what she can from Nell's body about what happened to her but the only thing 
that we hear her say after she touches Nell is Jesus wept. Contextually, this may not be something that many people know, but that verse in the Bible comes from the moment when Jesus's friend Lazarus Mm -hmm. has died. But then as many people may know, is that Lazarus is raised from the dead. Like Lazarus comes back. So just that choice of words. So good. Well, I want to briefly talk about her as an adaptation from the original Haunting of Hill House to now. Shirley Jackson is a phenomenal author and this adaptation is the least faithful adaptation I've ever seen, but it gets away with it. So I completely allow it as a one-time thing. Mike Flanagan found such a good story in changing this into family horror, but the original really is about losing your mind and like queerness. And it's interesting because back when this book was written, Theodora is very much implied to be queer, but she's very openly psychic. Right. So she's like openly queer and privately psychic. (laughs) Yes. It's a complete change of her character, but I think it's really brilliant for the modern time because you can, you can totally in the past be like, yeah, I saw ghosts, but kissing women, not allowed. But nowadays to be like, yeah, I like hook up with women on the weekends, but you're like, I saw a ghost in the room and people are like, no, (laughs) no, it's such a wild time. And I know a lot of the critique about the show kind of comes from getting rid of it being primarily an Eleanor and queer horror centered theme. But I find the adaptation they found so incredibly successful that I, I don't care. Yeah. Okay. Next up is Luke. Baby Luke. Luke and Nell are twins, but like we're hitting the middle of the season and we're also starting to get like scary as shit. We're meeting the most fucked up of the siblings. They were the youngest. They went through the most as we will come to learn. And they remember the least, which I think is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Luke, when he's little, is this like adorable little blonde boy with glasses. He's just like that nerdy, adorable child who is just like soft and precious he's the sweetest little kid baby luke so cute and then the luke that we meet as an adult is a full-blown drug Mm -hmm. addict very hardened very messed up man it is very clear that nobody ever believes luke even from childhood Mm -hmm. but all of the siblings in adulthood talk about how distrustful they are of luke in the first episode, the message that Steven leaves to Nell, because Nell's very worried about Luke, and we don't know why, is he says that Luke got his 90-day chip, if you can believe that. Yes. And it's not said in that tone, but it's just the phrasing that is always tacked on when they're talking about Luke. That's so important. Yes. One of the themes surrounding Luke is that no one believes him, and no one ever did. So, like, as a, as a drug mm-hmm. addict... He's lost all kind of credibility, but he never had it. No. We don't believe Luke at first, but Luke has a friend named Abigail. He's claiming that there is like a full-on neighbor girl that he hangs out with all the time named Abigail. She lives in the woods. She has old clothes. You see her at one point and she is classic ghost. Yeah. She's wearing like kind of like old-timey clothes and she like comes out of the woods and they hang out and he draws her in photos, which (laughs) he draws some other things too. And so one of the things I wrote down is it should 100% of the time be the biggest red flag ever Mm -hmm. if your kid is drawing creepy shit. But then also I heard so many stories about kids just coming out of left field with some of the most fucked up shit in their life just saying it and you're like red flag and we go on and we go on (laughs) with our lives I guess. But no one believes that Abigail exists. They're like oh Luke has this imaginary friend named Abigail and they set you up as an audience to question whether or not she is real so hardcore. 
because he's given absolutely no credibility ever. There's a really heartbreaking Mm -hmm. quote at one point where he straight up says, big boys know the difference between what's real and imaginary. (gasps) Okay, that scene is so important because it seems really little until you've seen the entire season. And Luke brings that back up as adulthood, but it's also, it links him to the ghost that haunts him the most. Yes, every sibling kind of has their own ghost or their own really formative experience Luke, as they're unpacking, his parents find this bowler hat and Luke really wants it, but he's talking about Abigail and all this stuff and his dad, before handing it to him, kind of withholds it and says, little boys know what's real and imaginary, right? Yeah, I think it's big boys know the difference between what's real and what's imaginary. Yes, and it and later in life, as he's confronting his father about all the shit that's happened in his life, he kind of shuts down the conversation by throwing it back in his dad's face, being like, big boys know the difference between what's real and imaginary, right, dad? And you see how much it, this tiny little phrase that Hugh probably doesn't even remember saying changed the course of Luke's life. It just cemented in him the fact that he has to know what's real and imaginary and he cannot trust himself, but he also cannot talk about it to anybody because no one believes him. Right, and he's just been set up to not trust himself even because everyone is just gaslighting him his entire yes. life into... None of the trauma that you've experienced is real and you cannot be trusted. Your coping mechanisms are not valid. Mm -hmm. Oh, his coping mechanism is so sad. He, in the beginning, I think of this episode, he introduces to Nelly this idea that you have to take out kind of three mementos and you got to count them because there's seven people in their family. And so he takes out seven of them and he counts to seven. And that's how like you'll be protected. We don't ever really know if Luke even believes this and it doesn't ever seem to work for him like it doesn't protect him from the tall man yeah it doesn't protect him later in life like he has no real coping and i think a a theory about that is after their mom dies there is never again seven of them in the family until the very end of the show and it raises into question if his coping mechanism can't even work if there's not all of them there which i think is a huge theme about addicts too about like placing your recovery Mm -hmm. on anybody else and that becomes a huge theme with his friend Joey in recovery about like placing your faith in yourself and what somebody else thinks of you and how damaging of course that is. I think that's perfect too is like he did put his coping mechanism on external things which like you said is just like the perfect metaphor of later for being an addict like you can't put your recovery on somebody else. No and the fact that his coping mechanism is his family and yet his family so completely shuns him from the beginning is so tragic. Yeah. I think Luke is the example of kind of like not having a coping mechanism or or like losing yourself in your grief and your trauma. It's just like you can't ever get ahead of it. And like needing to be detached from reality to even continue on. Yeah. There is a day trip out of rehab that happens in a flashback where we see Luke visit S- his S- older brother Stephen for dinner with his friend Joey from rehab. Steve is such an asshole at that dinner Mm -hmm. in this night in this or first day pass or whatever that he gets to go visit steve of all all of his siblings he chooses steve and steve is an absolute dick both to joey and also to luke about recovery and mental illness like he doesn't want to believe in ghosts so he says it's mental illness but then steve also is so rude about any sort Mm -hmm. of recovery or joey or maybe luke at this dinner explain relapses and Mm -hmm and the repetitive nature of recovery Mm -hmm. in a really beautiful way. Like they're trying to have a lot of grace around it. And this is where Steve jumps in and just shuts it all down. And he's a huge asshole about it. 
that the repetitive nature of recovery is also a really sad angle on recovery from grief as well is that like there are elements of grief where it sometimes feels like you can't crawl out from under it and you will relapse Mm -hmm. and you think you're better until you're not luke's tie-in from addiction to grief really sad i wrote down that luke is i think the saddest one I well, him and Nellie both tug my heartstrings so much. An interesting element about both of the twins in adult life is that their childhood ghosts come back. This is something that I feel like I still don't have my mind wrapped a hundred percent around. Is just like, why now? Yeah. So Luke's ghost mm-hmm. is a really really tall man. So he floats just off the ground. He has on this bowler hat mm-hmm. that Luke found in the house, and then he's like inhumanly tall and skinny. We'll get into Nell in a bit, but Nell also has the bent neck lady. Mm -hmm. And both of these specific ghosts come back to haunt the twins in their adult life somewhat out of the blue. Like when it comes to Luke. Yeah, you don't know why. His ghost is just back in his adult life and we don't really know Mm -hmm. why. Well, that's where I think the story gives you answers later is really important. Because you won't know a lot and it'll feel kind of like a plot hole or very sudden until later they're like, here are all the reasons why and here are all of the little bits within the story that if you learn how to read them, you'll understand why it's happening at that moment. Yeah. Which I call witness marks and the show calls witness marks. But is both your idea about like grief and addiction being cyclical, like things will come up again. Like you'll be in an era of goodness, which we see at the beginning of Nellie's episode, which is like the best the family's ever been you'll think you'll be out from it and it'll just come back. And I think specifically it comes back for this family with the death of Nell, where like they're all doing pretty great until Nell goes through a horrific incident, which we will go into. But Nell's grief from that incident, I think, pulls the family apart. All of these inciting incidents and ghosts come back for Nell in that moment. And it's on Nell's death that Luke's ghosts come back for him. So like, I think there's a lot of talk between the parents in their themes about like holding the door against the world and monsters to keep their children safe. As much as I think the parents tried to do that, they definitely failed. And I think Nell is like the heart of the family and like just succumbing to so much grief is what I think fractures the family and pulls them all back into their past. The other thing I think it's important to note, which I don't really want to get into details just yet until we've gone all the way through, is there's so much foreshadowing in this episode that is so incredibly blatant if you are someone who is super super tuned into stuff like that like maybe you started to pick up on that and you're like oh i see where this is going it was subtle enough for me that there's a lot of foreshadowing that i completely missed in this episode until we know what happens later what i think and we'll get into it into episode eight because plot wise episode eight might be the most boring but i find it the most exciting because it's the one time the story gets to put itself first and basically explain to you everything you've missed Mm -hmm. and on rewatch you see all of these things that are just so ridiculously apparent but in the moment you don't know how to read them you don't know what they mean you just kind of absorb them and move on there are little bits where you you watch it and you kind of roll your eyes and you're like that's so obvious but in the moment you didn't catch it it wasn't obvious to you then no and this makes it so brilliant how did this family stay we have seen so many effed up things happen to the children and they're like literally waking up screaming in the middle of the night every single night how do you not leave One, how do you not leave? And as an adult, how are you not scared? Like, okay, clearly at this point Mm -hmm. in the show, the mom is off. Yeah. But Hugh, the dad, is just so effortlessly like, there's nothing to be afraid Mm -hmm. of. Bro, if my child came upstairs and was like, 
a skeleton tried to attack me in the basement, I would be like, and the house is on the market. Yep, like, and burned down. I'm moving. <laughs> oh, no. Arson? Like, I yeah. just... Well, I think... I mean, they do touch about it a little bit at the end, but they could have made it a lot more prominent for all the adults watching. Because, of course, this show plays on a lot about childhood fears, and we all relate. But there was a very horrific event looming over them in which the parents bought this house to flip at the end of summer, which only gives them three months. And they run into a slew of issues with this house because, of course, it's haunted. If they don't finish this and if they don't finish this specifically by the end of summer, like they are fucked financially as Mm -hmm. a family. Like they do not get to move into their forever home. They have to stay here. And so I think there's this kind of bullheadedness from the dad of Shirley gets this from him, but he has a stance of like, I can fix it. I'm the contractor here. I can fix it. I can fix it. Like no matter what happens, I can fix it. And he really, it seems like puts his head down Mm -hmm. to a lot of the spookiness to just be like, finish it, like work ahead, finish it, get out, finish it, which is so interesting. Hugh's position at the end, because as much as he was not a supernatural, spiritual kind of person in this relationship, that was very much Olivia. Like he has this forced upon him by the end in the most tragic way. Yeah, I think it's true. The final note I have on Luke is, as a child, Luke is this like adorable little kid that has to wear glasses. And it's very, it's clear that his prescription is intense because it like makes his eyes really big, you know, like. No, you're so Like baby Luke, baby Luke cannot see. And then adult Luke is one, not wearing glasses. And you know that this addict man is also not wearing contacts. Like, he can't get his shit together to wear contacts. So as an adult, can Luke just, like, not see? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I really wonder. I really wonder if he's the entire show. Is there anything there? Is there, like, this, like, he stopped wearing glasses? Like, he has, he, I don't know. I don't know. Can he see anything? Okay, next we have episode five, the Bent Neck Lady episode. That's brilliant. One of the best episodes of television I think I've ever seen. It is so deeply horrific, though, but it is a masterpiece. Yeah. Well, it's the middle of the show. It's, I think, the entire thesis of the show gets presented. It's almost, it's like an episode where everything is important. Yeah. Yeah. There's like metaphors upon metaphors and everything connects. And, and it's like the scariest episode. This is part of the intro of the show, I think, where Nell, as a, as a little, little girl. Oh, it opens the show sees the bent neck lady which is very important vital vital character yeah and it's just like the the stuff of nightmares serious fucking ghost shadow floating woman very dark form like dark stringy hair and her neck is bent at this like disgusting like grotesque angle like her neck bone it's the tightest point of her body and then her head goes to the side and it's just horrific. And she's just like floating there. This is the most important ghost in the house. Well, besides Poppy. Besides Poppy. Poppy wants to think she's the most important though, but... <laughs> Damn, don't let her, her say that. She's coming for you. Uh... <laughs> The way that this episode opens is actually like another viewing of an event that we've already seen, but from a slightly like expanded perspective. So something that happens to Nell, you know, at the beginning is she sees the bent neck lady in her room. She's very scared. Her mom and dad take her down to the living room of all places. This is this is one point for me where I was like, <laughs> what the fuck? Absolutely the fuck not. Absolutely. Who sleeps in the living room? Like, there's no defensible positions in that room. There's no defensible positions in any living room. In when you're scared, room. why are you going to go sleep in the living room? Like, why didn't Nell go sleep in her parents' bed? 
it's not her parents like pushing this on no, her. No, she wants to. Literally Nell being like, yes, this feels good. And I'm like, okay. Fake. Fake, but okay. Anyway, Nell as a tiny child feels okay in the living room in this like grandiose. It's a detached like couch in the middle of, I don't get it. Yeah, she's sleeping on like basically an old timey chaise lounge in the middle of this room. Yeah, in the middle of the room. Not even like near a corner where you can kind of hole up with a knife. Like in <laughs> the complete hole middle. Up with a knife. <laughs> it's so fucked up. <laughs> okay, so anyway. She tries to sleep for a little bit. She wakes up. She's like breathing heavy. She's looking above her. And the bent neck lady is now hovering over her like parallel to her laying down. And we've so we've seen that once before. Mm-hmm. It's in the opening episode. This time in episode five, we see this happen again. So we know the bent neck lady is going to be there. But there's like a little bit more going on. There's like a ticking sound. We know the bent neck lady is coming. She's about to be hovering over Nell's body. But then this time, we also hear the bent neck lady saying in this like low raspy voice, just like no, over and over again. It's like, no, 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 no. And it's so scary, like so scary. And it's one of those things where you're like, I've seen this. I'm prepared for what's about to happen. And then they add another level and you're like, ugh. I know, like the first time that the bent neck lady was hovering over her, I was like, oh my God, like it's so jarring. It's so scary. And then like, you're you're like, okay, whew, this is still going to be scary, but I'm ready. Nope, nope, you're not. Nope, you're not. <laughs> it's so good. It's beautiful because this happens and it's something we've already seen, but this specifically in the show is being recounted as a memory because it leads directly into Nell seeing a sleep tech. Mm-hmm. And there's even like parallels in this conversation with the sleep tech back, you know, when this happened to her and she's describing to her dad this nightmare that she has as a young child. Her dad says, like, sometimes dreams feel like they slip through into reality. A little spill. A little spill of your dream into reality and you think you see a ghost or you think something's real and it's not. This is almost exactly what the sleep tech describes to her. So it feels sort of comforting to her in a way, I think. And this sleep tech is Arthur. So this is the man that she's going to marry. And there's something so beautiful about the fact that Nell finally found someone who doesn't think she's crazy. And it's not just that Arthur is explaining away all of her shit by being like, there's a clinical explanation for this. It's just that she's like accepted and believed. And him being like, this is normal and this is common and this is how you deal with it. It's so supportive. Yeah, and we get a slew of memories about their relationship over time. And what's so interesting about this, and it's almost a little bit jarring, is that the family is like very much together. Albeit Luke is not there. It's Luke is still absent from a lot of these happy family moments. This is almost why I feel like he's the saddest one is he never, he never got to partake in any of the happy family memories. Mm-hmm everyone's hanging out through all of these like memories of the progression of Nell and Arthur's relationship and it's like confusing to us because we're not sure yet how they got to the point that they're at right before Nell died where Mm -hmm. they're completely fractured. Yeah the montage of life is the happiest the show ever is. Think what the show does fantastic which it demonstrated in the beginning of this episode by introducing us to a scene we've seen and then shocking us with something that's new and they do this within the montage of life there's a brief moment where Nell wakes up with sleep paralysis while Arthur's there and he coaches her through it and they wake up and then the montage continues and there's a flow of memories and it's their wedding again when they come back to 
another sleep paralysis moment, we feel disarmed by knowing their routine. We know what's going to happen. And yet the show does what it did in the beginning by introducing a new horrific element that just completely shatters you. Yeah. It's like evident in the scene. This is like not their first time going through this. And they go back to bed. She's having another sleep paralysis episode. And he gets up, I think, to like turn on the light or grab something for her. Yeah, it's like their routine because he like coaches her through it. He's like, I'll get the light. He stands up. We've seen that. But then Arthur just collapses Mm -hmm. and he is on the ground seizing. Mm -hmm. He's like dying and Nell is in bed paralyzed. He's not there to coach her through it. She can't get out of it. She is just in bed paralyzed watching her husband die before her eyes from a brain aneurysm. And in the corner of the room is the bent neck lady. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's just like we were so disarmed because we're like, they'll get through it. Only this time it's It's horrific. Horrific. I dread it now every time I watch the episode and they get to the second sleep paralysis scene because he says, I'm going to go get the light. You've heard that before. It's so comforting. And then that's his last words he ever says. And it's it's so fucked up. Yeah, he just, Arthur's death is maybe one of the most fucked up things I've ever seen. This entire episode is one of the most fucked up things I've ever seen in television. And yet it is such an astounding episode, which just speaks to their mm-hmm. being able to like create something that's so complex and so filled with like beauty and sadness and melancholy. Nell obvi- obviously uh, is in therapy. She tells her therapist she thinks that the bent neck lady killed Arthur. Mm-hmm. And it's so incredibly sad. Like she attributes it to this dark trauma she already has in her life. Mm-hmm. It got Arthur. The one thing that was good mm-hmm. in her life, she knows that the house will not let her get away. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. And it, it does harken back to this idea that like there is something to that. Like the house is trying to get her back. Yeah. There's a flashback that's important here. Oh, this is so crazy. Where the mom seems to have caught Nell writing on the wall, only Nell didn't write anything on the wall. Yeah, her mom like comes in super angry, having a another color storm, and we start to see the deterioration of Olivia. Yeah, she's like no longer this like poised, elegant, lovely, good mother. Slightly witchy, great mother. She's like angry and hysterical. Yeah, and so she yells at Nell. And Theo comes in and is like, no, I believe my sister. And Theo immediately gets yelled at, which I think ties to a Theo plot of like Theo, because she's older than the siblings, takes on a lot of the backlash from the parents. Theo helps Luke go down to the basement and that ends in him kind of being attacked. And the parents yell at Theo. And then Theo stands up for her sister in this moment. And the parents yell at Theo, like Theo always takes the backlash. But in this particular instance, she goes to tear down the wallpaper because they're tearing it down anyway. And it just says, come home now, which is so freaky. And then way later in the episode, when Nell, of course, obviously returns to the house, we've known that since the beginning, there is now a ghost version of her mother writing, not come home now, but welcome home now. And that has been on the wall since her childhood, even though it was written in the future. Right. So there's this element of time slippage Mm -hmm. where it's like the ghosty things that happen in this house are always there. Yeah. We get to see finally the LA conversation that Theo referenced in that really, really offhand moment to Shirley back at the beginning. And it is where Nell, who is, you know, very aware of what Theo's powers are, asks Theo to touch the spots where Arthur was on that last night when he died. Mm -hmm. And you know, maybe it's to know what he was thinking or going through or like connect to him in some way, but maybe also to justify the fact that she thinks he was killed by mm-hmm. the bent neck lady in this supernatural force. Yeah. 
and it obviously goes very, very poorly. This is what really drives a rift between Theo and Nell. This is why the writing is very, very well done, in which it is completely unfair to ask Theo to relive Arthur's last moments. But at the same time, Theo, while there, is incredibly dismissive of Nell's grief. She berates Nell and then she chides her for not being cleaner and kind of is like, well, this was my trip and I thought we were going to have fun. Well, like Nell is obviously in an incredible state of grief. Instead of sitting there and seeing this as a moment to kind of sit down with Nell, she kind of in an offhandedly way is like, I thought we would be better. I don't need to put up with this. Here's a boundary. Mm -hmm. You see also how that damages Nell's relationship. Like it's just you understand everyone's sides and yet you see all of the unnecessary damage everybody's doing to each other from there really start to see Nell like unravel Mm -hmm. and there's a moment where she goes to confront Steve at a book signing for like never believing her and at first I was like this is so odd and yes she's had so many opportunities to get mad at Steve for this like Mm -hmm. the book has been out for a long time at this point this is after the book came out this is after her wedding this is after she's lost Arthur like it's like Nell making all of her last ditch efforts to actually sort of ask for help. Yeah. She's like blowing up at Steve over not believing her about the book. And she's trying to explain that like she's still experiencing yeah. this ghost. Something is still really wrong. It's almost like she's mad at him in the present for not believing her because no one will and she needs help. She's fire takes at Steve like everything she says is so, so right true. but there is still that umbrella of like why now and I think it's a great point that like this is kind of a last ditch effort and also the fact that it's always been right mm-hmm. I think she throws at him this line of like I'm crazy Luke's crazy mom's crazy and you profit and you were supposed to be my big brother and you never believed me and there's I think one of the best takeaways there's this dichotomy between those that believe mm-hmm. and those that don't and so she's like Even if you think that this is mental health and you think I'm crazy and mom's crazy and Luke's crazy, you're not doing anything to help us. And you're just mean. Yeah. Yep. There's also a line when Theo and Nell are in LA. Nellie Alive has some of the best criticism about her siblings, which parallels at the end when she's very forgiving of them. But with Theo, she's like, because Theo's like, I have my boundaries. And she's like, you only ever have boundaries with us, but you will allow so much for yourself because you have all of the excuses and you'll never allow any for us. From here, the episode launches into like her final moments, her final days. And (laughs) this therapist really is an awful therapist. He fucking sucks. Oh my God. The therapist telling Nellie to go confront the house was a bad call. She very clearly in a session is like, well, I confronted Steven like you told me. And he's like, "Ah, did I say that? And is this really about confronting Steven? And then immediately launches into, it's just a house. Do you not see what she will like? Are you so dumb? Yeah, he's a terrible therapist. Mm -hmm. But like, this is what sets her on her path. She's going to go confront the house. She has some really scary flashes of, like, a dead Luke on the ceiling. The dead Luke on the ceiling is the explanation about all of the calls she makes on the first episode. So all of these disjointed calls where she's very scattered and she's calling Shirley and she's calling Steven and I'm worried about Luke. We're seeing all of the calls happen again in a newer light and we're also seeing the cause of them. She has this hallucination of, like, Luke being dead but, like, on her ceiling in the motel, which to me is a huge question mark. Like, what on earth was that? I think, I didn't check the outfits again. I think that's him in the red room at the end. I, I mean, yeah, I guess when it comes to Nell and, and her final days, there is some time slippage. 
but there's a reason for that, I guess, and it, it is important. So maybe that can't all be explained. Before Nell gets to the house, there is one final bent neck lady moment here at the hotel. I can't watch it. It is the scariest one. So there's a moment where Nell is going to the vending machine. The lights get all flashy and spooky. And then the bent neck lady like drops from the ceiling and Nell like drops to the ground. It is one of the only jump scares. There's not many. There's not many. There's there's like two that I can think of. Maybe three. I think one of them doesn't really count, but it is like an important moment. And then there's there's like definitively two. Right. And so that's like the scariest bent neck lady moment. Well, there's a really insane moment where she makes a bunch of calls. She goes to the jump scare with the bent neck lady and she comes back and Steve's left a message from the first one kind of saying like, it's Luke's 90 day. And then she just sits there staring into nothing for hours. Like we watch the lighting change on her face. And I don't know if it's like, awake sleep paralysis but she doesn't move until yeah. she just kind of coughs and blinks like it's been only a second for her and she turns around it's 1 a.m it, it's so scary like nell is losing it she goes to the house and she makes like this final call to her dad which the dad in the present day we do not know much no. about but we've gotten throughout these episodes like bits and pieces of something happened in the house this man fled with all of his children and mm-hmm. the wife is dead like very obviously the public the police everyone thinks that he killed their mom yeah he's so detached from everyone like he's not living anywhere near anybody we see Nell call him and he's like so alone Mm -hmm. and I love that us as audience members like also are not sure whether or not he did do something to the mom it's clear enough that for Nellie this is so serious it's like time to reach out to her dad Mm-hmm. And I wrote that her acting is so, so good in this scene. Like, her voice is so haunting. Oh, Victoria Pedretti just fucking kills it. Oh, gosh. And so she enters the house. It's, I think, one of the most vile things in this particular episode is how the house, like, eats her. She comes in and it just beasts on her happiest moments. And it shows her, like, everything she's ever wanted. Like, all of the mm-hmm. siblings apologize. They tell her she's right, that they believe her. You see Luke? Like, how long has it been since she's seen Luke? The last time she saw Luke, she was buying Luke heroin to go into rehab. So she sees Luke, which wasn't there for his wedding day, and then Luke steps aside and she sees Arthur, and it's just the saddest thing in the world. And you get this, like, beautiful shot of them, like, waltzing through the house together. And the show cuts back to something we saw in the first episode, which is Nell, like, hauntingly drifting through this absolutely decrepit house. Right, the warmth of the home. It's all gone. There's no music. There's no one. It's just Nell. Yeah, that turns that scene that was so scary in the beginning to something that's just super sad. Right. But she arrives at what we know as the Red Room by this point in the show. We haven't touched on this yet, but there's this room in the house throughout all of their renovating that they can't open. It has a red door. They cannot find the key. We see them make multiple attempts at opening it. So Nell now on this night where she is mm-hmm. back at the house as an adult, she arrives at the red room and there her mother is there. They're having this tea party. And then in Nell's mind, this place isn't decrepit and mm-hmm. horrific. It's like beautiful. And she's having this tea party with her mom. And it's such a good way of unblocking a memory of like, we don't know yet the significance that that tea party plays or why she came back to that place where there's a tea party happening. Mm -hmm. But it's a really good way of sort of opening up that memory and giving us just a taste of like, there's more here than you, than even, you know, like they gave us so much in this episode, but they still didn't give us all of it. Yep. And they do that through all of the last episodes, which will give it to you. And when you rewatch it, you're like, how did I not know what was coming? And it still hits you like a train. And then we get to the final 
moments of this episode, the, the twist, the most brilliant part of this. I gasped. I did not see this coming. Goosebumps every time. I didn't see this coming. Every time. Every time. It's brilliant. There's a very large kind of library mm-hmm. room and it has this big spirally staircase with a little balcony mm-hmm. overlooking the rest of the room. And Nell, in a trance, walks out onto this balcony and then walks off of it, hanging herself, and she dies. But the second that that happens, it doesn't stop there. Like, she hits, you get that hit where she's she's hung, and then all of a sudden, she is the bent neck lady, and she's falling into all of the scenes that we've seen her in before. Like, when it's so well done, you hear the crack, and you're like, oh, she's dead, and then it shows her, and you're like, I know that silhouette, and then it drops her into the vending room. It's all in chronological order. So it's the last time we've seen the bent neck lady, which is the first time she is the bent neck lady. And then it drops her into Arthur's death. And then it drops her over herself. And by the time she's over herself, it is both dawning on us and her at the same time. What is happening? And by the time she drops all the way back down to the first time, little Nellie at the beginning of the show sees the bent neck lady, she screams. And that's the beginning of the show. And it's so tragic and unavoidable and cyclical. And it's been there throughout the entire show in front of us. It's just a brilliant moment. And I don't know if it's like getting ahead of ourselves, but there is a very important passage that Nell says later about like pieces of your life falling around you like confetti. The entire episode is structured like that a bit because like we're getting all these random memories of Nell's life and they're somewhat in chronological order, but not totally. There's time slippage in this episode for the first time in the show. We're really getting a sense of like, Something is a little bit funky yeah. and out of order. And it it's so well edited because you think it's an editing choice to see like somebody reaching for a handle in the past and then grab it in the future. But it's actually a reinforced thesis from the show about time and how we experience it and memory and the fact that what we experience in the past is experienced in the future. And those moments can take place side by side, even though we're experiencing it literally, it's happening out of order. And then having this dichotomy right at the very end where she first gets to the house and she has all of these beautiful moments falling around her like confetti of her wedding and everyone apologizing and like seeing her life and experiencing all the beauty of memory. And then all of a sudden she is the bent neck lady and she is literally falling through yeah. her own life, but in the most horrific way. And it's almost like memory can be beautiful and memory can be horrible. Yeah. And I want to note that it is her mother who kills her in the end. Like her mom's there leading her through these memories and gives her a locket and the locket is actually a rope. And then she kisses her daughter on the head and her daughter falls to her death, which becomes a huge point for Olivia's arc about protecting your kids. Yeah. It's a huge episode. Okay, everyone, that is about everything that we could fit into a part one for The Haunting of Hill House. Um, We love this show so much. There is simply way too much to talk about. Um, So we're bumping it out to a part two. So make sure you head on to the next episode to keep listening. Thanks.